0: I'm Gary O'Reilly. And I'm Chuck Nice, And this is Playing, Playing With Science. Science. Yes, there are those of us who like a quiet life. Those of us who live vicariously. And then there are those of us who seem to have an unhealthy lack of fear. And that's exactly where we are headed. The outer limits and extreme sports. Yeah, and who better to tell us what it's
1: like to fly at Mach 2.6, be shot on purpose mm-hmm. and go swimming without a wetsuit at the north pole. That man is here with us and that man is none other than Jim Clash. Yes. I like the way it sounds. Yes. So it's like yes. Jim Clash. Oh no,
0: that's Marvel hero. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's not all. Yes, and helping us to understand what drives someone like Jim. We'll also hear later on from neuroscientist Heather Berlin and from extreme sports psychologist Dr. Eric Rhyme.
1: Yes. But joining us right now, right here in studio, as I said, adventurer, Jim Clash. Ta-da! Whoa, yeah. Jim, what's happening, buddy? How are yeah, you? It's, it's, thanks, it's Chuck.
2: To... Thanks, Gary. You guys have so much energy. I feel like I have to match you. Oh, I, not, Whatever. Listen, man. It's a kind of, uh, Jam- I mean, Jim Clash sounds a little bit James Bond. It's, yeah, it's really because
1: real uh, for a man who is
2: truly an adventurer, to have the name Jim Clash really sounds like it's kind of a stage name. You know, I've been asked that question many times, and and the answer is yes, that's my real name. My you know my parents' surname was was Clash, and uh, oh, that's fabulous! That's, you know, I'm awesome. lucky. They knew it. They knew what they knew. You, they a, knew what you were destined we checked for. It out. It's quite apparently, it's quite a rare
0: English name from medieval times of East London. So, uh, yeah, good for you. Very cool. Very All cool. Right. You're a longtime time journalist. Mm. Uh, you've been working with Forbes for. Some time, rather than to carbon date you. We'll just go with some time. (laughs) A long time. Yeah. Um, But you're into the adventure. I mean, we listed a couple of things there. You've flown in a MiG-25 to the edge of space at 2.6 times the speed of sound. Yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. Right Right there. Okay. That right there. That'll do. That's a
1: show. And thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Good night. Thank
0: you. That's our show. Swimming... Without a wetsuit at the North Pole, okay. But you then went and skied to the South Pole.
2: Yeah, I've skied to the South Pole. Yeah, which, that was a lot tougher than swimming at the North. Yes,
0: it's I mean, I mean, without stating the obvious, it's a very different place yeah. altogether. It
1: is. It is. All right, let's let's go back to the MIG two point five flying at two point five times the speed of sound.
3: Yeah. All right,
1: being in a MIG jet, first of all, how does that come about? Secondly, what the hell was that like? I mean, is it yeah. is it better than sex? Tell the truth.
2: Uh.
0: No. Thank God! Oh, thank you, God.
1: Because uh, it looks like it is. Anyone
0: else surprised that we went there? With Chuck? Really?
1: I'm not. So, anyway, go ahead. Uh, Jim, how did that come about? Seriously, I mean, that's a that's a crazy thing to be able to do. I mean, who
2: do you know? Well, at, yeah. the, t- at the time, I was be- working on a big story about space tourism. Uh-huh. And oh, okay. this was in the late 90s. And you could actually fly for a fee in a MiG-25 Foxbat up to 84,000 feet above the earth.
0: Oh, that was the old Clint Eastwood <laughs> movie, wasn't it? Was it that Firefox, that kind of thing?
2: Yeah, and, and you're, you're you're literally, um, I can tell you, um, you know, Forbes paid for it. It was uh, part of an adventure story for them. Uh, we, we got a reduced rate uh, versus what the, the commercial rate is. But the actual flight was a, a life-changing experience for me because when you get up, to 84,000 feet, you can see the curvature of the Earth, you can see the atmosphere hanging over the Earth, right. and you can literally see the blackness of space. Wow. And this, this MiG-25 flight is the reason I want to go into space.
1: Ah, which brings us to the next thing now that you might as well segue into it. You actually own a ticket for Virgin Galactic's uh, space tourism. Chuck um, and I were
0: trying to sort of like tease you into handing it over. Yeah, man. Uh, naming your price, but as, you're holding on tight. I would so so you see the you see the blackness of space you
1: see the the tentative nature of our planet because yeah. you're looking at the atmosphere and it's very very um uh, evident that this is, you know, a small covering that coats our earth and keeps us from this vastness that we are traveling in called space and then you say hey I think I'll go there <laughs>
2: One thing I have to say about what you just said about the atmosphere is when you get up there, it is it is like the um, skin on an apple, it's, yeah. it's incredibly thin, yeah. and you realize that that's the only thing protecting us, and you realize we don't want to screw it up. So now, you, you haven't always done
0: that sort of scale of things, you've sort of done things like figure skate with Sasha, our friend, Sasha yeah, Cohen. Friend of the show, Sasha then
1: Cohen. Then stood in
2: a ball ring and came out the worst for wear because of a ball. That's true. Uh, I've done some stupid things. Uh, the bull is probably the dumbest thing. The PBR asked me if I wanted to be a bullfighter, or basically a rodeo clown. When the rider is thrown off a bull, he's vulnerable. So you yeah. want these guys to, to get tracked. the bull exactly. And I dangerous, went out. Super dangerous. It man. is dangerous. And I, they asked me if I wanted to do it for a story. Embed embed as a bullfighter, and I said okay. And uh, I ended up with a level, uh, well broken three ribs. Oh my! Yeah. Now,
1: did that happen because you were in the barrel and the bull hit the barrel and and it went that far, or did the bull hit
2: you? No, no. What happened was the bull threw the rider, and there were three of us, three bullfighters who had to distract him away from the rider. The rider ran out of the ring, and when the bull got to me, we locked eyes, and I tried to run around him the way we had taught so that I could get him to go in a circle around me, but I didn't get behind the second horn, and he just took the horn, threw it into my back broke oh. my ribs threw me up in the air about four feet and slammed me against the wall oh, he must uh, have and then him. he came in and well he came in for the gore yeah and and the other two got him away from me so oh, i was lucky man. i was oh, lucky man. somebody up there loves you yeah but that was the stupidest thing i think i've ever done in terms of the figure skating with sasha that was supposed to be a fun story you know forbes adventure goes figure skating with yeah. olympic silver medalist and um, friends i'm but at the time, uh, the deal was I would take her out in a Lamborghini, and she would drive fast because she wanted to learn how to drive fast, which is something else I do. Yes, yeah. and uh, so she got the Lambo up to about one thirty on the four hundred five in California. So that was supposed to be the dangerous part of the of the of the story. The other part was she would teach me to figure skate. Right. So we went to the Elysia. Had you skated? No, I'd never been on skates in my life. Oh, oh my God! If this story ends <laughs> up with you breaking three ribs, I'm going to die. No,
1: I'm
0: joking. <laughs> oh,
2: we're going to laugh. <laughs> Actually, it's it's worse. Oh, um, good. Um, she had me out on the ice, and she was a very good teacher. Uh, and I asked, I want to learn how to do a simple spin. Oh. And uh, so she told me to to reach back as if I'm going to punch somebody, and swing, and you'll magically go around. So the first time I tried, I, you know, I was clumsy and everything. She goes, no, you really have to commit yourself. So I swung my arm around, and the next thing you know, I was in an ambulance – and that's, I don't remember anything. Oh. My skates got caught up, and I fell on my head on the ice. Oh, my God. Yeah.
0: Oh, but you're here, so I can laugh. Yeah,
2: yeah you can laugh now.
0: At the
1: time, At the time the ice is
2: very very it's, unforgiving it's, it's, to the head. It's basically like pavement. It's as hard yes. as pavement. And I'll tell you something. Coming out of that, I have this tremendous respect for figure skaters, because what they do, they make look simple, but it's dangerous. Yep. And it's difficult. So I know. Did I did saw I, And I
0: got to tell you, my life is never going to be the same. <laughs> that was more to do with the tutu and the sequence. But we did a show featuring Sasha and Wait. We
3: have Sasha. the footage?
1: Wait. Okay. I just Somebody just told me in my we ear. We have the footage. We have the footage of Jim? Oh, my God. We do. All right. So for those of you who are listening.
2: No, you're, you're oh. oh. A little right. too hard.
1: Oh, this- oh! Oh my God! You kissed the. Oh, wait ice. a minute. Who was that from Forbes magazine that put his head down, just like I've lost my greatest adventurer writer ever?
2: <laughs> well, I remember poor Sasha. You know, again, she I don't amazing. remember anything. But later on, you know, her mom told me that Sasha was really upset. And yeah. you know, but the you know, we made lemonade with lemons. We become very good friends. I was actually um, at the shoot where you guys did her recently um, yeah. on, on yeah. Playing yeah. with Science. I mean, we
0: did the we did the show featuring Sasha, and I've never been the biggest figure skating fan. What I yeah, did was I walked out of the studio and went, unbelievable yeah. respect and understanding for not just the science and the physics, but for everything, the athleticism,
1: the, and, the, the, uh, the, the determination, daddy, everything, the everything that goes
0: into becoming it's a serious ad- sport. I'd never taken it. Really, that seriously as a sport. Oh, it's... However, I came out of there with a totally different point of view. Yeah, totally changed my approach to figure skating. And for, and so when you know when when you say what you say, I absolutely get it. So forgive me. I hate to
1: uh, to dwell on your pain, Jim. However, but that video. <laughs> oh, my God. So for those of you who because we were we didn't really explain what was happening. Jim was doing what he said he was doing, which was reaching back and trying to get the, uh, the, the spin yeah. and get the momentum to, to do the spin. The thing is, when he wrapped his arm around his body, it left him in a position Where he fell, and of course, your natural inclination when you fall is to put your arms out to break your fall. His arms were in such a position that he could not reach out for the ice to break his fall. He goes down and goes down full force on his face. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. It's... It's and, and listen, if you want to see it, you can go online or you can go to com and, 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 and look at it. But my God, man, have you ever been on skates since? Because that would have been my one and only time on skates.
2: No, as a matter of fact, um, a couple weeks later, a package arrived at Forbes and within the package was a skate and it was a skate that they took off of my foot and it was signed oh Jim you crazy adventure what does not kill you makes you stronger love Sasha Cohen oh, and how i still have that skate in my office and it uh, reminds yeah. me of never going back out and skating yeah man okay so God. you've you've driven
0: Bugatti Veyrons at 200 plus 250 plus miles yeah, an hour yeah
2: yeah yeah what
0: next what's all right space we get is the given what's what else what's the top three for an adventurer what's the top three bucket list I gotta do that dude for you and is there for anything everybody left well this is <laughs> well, the <there's> problem something <laughs> left
2: I mean this is a problem you know I mean I've, I've flown in an F-15 I've flown yeah. in the mig I've climbed the Matterhorn I've uh, been shot point blank with a 38 and that wasn't uh, that
0: that wasn't the worst thing being shot with Wait,
1: do we have
2: that video guys because
1: <laughs> I gotta tell you I'm thinking ice skating yeah. and being shot let mm. me let me just say this Jim. Uh, As a black man, I was watching you live my worst nightmare. (laughs) (laughs) Jeez, Chuck.
2: (laughs) But at least least I had a a high-fashion ballistics garment on, which protected me. As long as it's high-fashion, yeah. You saw the leather coat in the video. It's it's, it's sold for $7,000 at Harrods. And a lot of big-name people wear these things. You don't even know that they're ballistics clothing because they're made so high-fashion.
1: Now, here's the thing. I want to know about that. I I don't know if we have this video, but even the audio from the video itself will be compelling. So let me just explain to people what we're talking about. Uh, Jim is with the manufacturer, and you can see the uh, workers in the background of the video Mm. constructing these garments. And Jim is standing there. Is that the owner of the company you were with, that gentleman? Yes, Miguel,
2: Miguel Caballero, and he's the guy. Who shot me? Yes. So he's standing there with the
1: owner, Miguel Caballero, and um, point blank people. I am not talking about like these videos that you see where a guy has a rifle or a gun from across the room. He is literally, he puts the gun like right in your solar plexus and pulls the trigger. And I screamed, I screamed at the video, I swear. I was just like, oh my God! But then I was like, oh wait, Chuck, you just saw him last week, you know he's alive. <laughs> but it's, it is, first, I wanna know, did you see somebody test this out? Number one and number two. What the frick is wrong with you? Why would you let somebody shoot you at point blank range? And number range? three, <laughs> I can't I remember all
0: these questions. questions. you to get insured? <laughs> okay, that's
1: okay, three. Okay, that's well, a good question. Uh, Insurance. <laughs> did you see it work out before you did it? And what the hell would make you let somebody shoot you at point blank range?
2: Okay, well. Uh, t- You know, there's always an element of risk in these adventures. I try to minimize it, uh, and I know that when I'm going to do a story, most of these companies... They don't want a journalist getting killed or hurt, so yeah. they, they take extra precautions. I had seen people get shot on videos. He normally shoots his workers once in a while to get them to motivated. That is yes, motivation, motivated. by the way. What 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 they're what they're making? What you want? What they're making? They better be right about making it right. Yeah. Um, the thing I did though, normally when he shoots somebody, is he puts an extra uh, layer of Kevlar there so they don't feel anything. But I wanted to take the shot as you would with a jacket no Kevlar. And he said he'd only done that one other time and he had broken the guy's ribs when he did it. So he said he was going to shoot me between my ribs and my hip in a, you know, the fatty area. Solid there. area. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, um, it made sense to me. Uh, I have to tell you, it hurt. It hurt a lot. It was like someone took a bullwhip and you got the very end of it, the burning sensation yeah. when it hit you. And then it was like a Mike Tyson punch.
1: Yeah. And by the way, at the, uh, when you, when you were shot, uh, immediately after you went like this, which I have the utmost respect for you, because my reaction would have been like, ah! Ah! okay, that would have been my reaction. And your reaction was, it burns. That's exactly, and that's exactly how he says it. See, that was the. He hit. says it just like this. He goes like this. It burns because he's got
0: <laughs> he's got some British blood in him.
4: And it's Ash, like, right? Very understated, unbelievable. Yes,
1: that burns. However, you then lifted up your uh, your shirt. And, dude, it looked like somebody beat you with a baseball bat. There's like a
2: huge,
1: um, wow. like, divot in, in, well, your, in your in your torso.
2: It got bigger over time, and I'd say I had that. Uh, maybe it got about this big. Wow. And I had that for a couple of weeks. Um, Did you get to keep the jacket? I did. Good. Uh, seven Good. grand. Uh, it has Make a little it. hole in it. The nicest thing was though, he let me keep the bullet, which was pancaked inside the in the jacket. Nice. Um, the physics oh, of that, I'm sure, is very interesting. Yeah. And uh, and uh, the rosary that I wore around my neck when Sweet. I when I did Sweet. <laughs>
0: exactly. So, well, I mean, wow. Apart from the fact that we will pay you to do these crazy, what we would consider this side of the studio crazy things, where does your mind go? Is it like I can't wait? Or is it fear? Or do you go, right, I need to prepare. I need to have a, a real firm grip on the science. I need to have a real firm grip on how, why, what, where, particularly if you're going to go up in a MIG, if you're going to do these things at speed. You'll be thinking tire pressures, tire compounds, reaction times. What are the forces? I mean, if you're doing 250 miles an hour, the G-force on you, you must be a G-force junkie, by the way. You Just how much of it do you get into and prepare for?
2: I have to say, many people have asked me that question, and and it's almost like an actor in a play. I feel like I am um, this actor. That's not really me getting in the car. That's not really me getting in the MIG, climbing the Matterhorn. They say a lot of actors are very shy outside of um, being on the stage or whatever, and and I think I'm a pretty normal shy person. It's just that I, you know, I, I put myself in that position. I'm an actor. I have to do a story. You're right. I prepare like hell for these things because you know you got to be on you got to have that adrenaline going uh, you got a channel of fear make it uh, positive uh, but if you prepare and you know that you've done as much as you can you you're able to to get through the fear if, if you don't prepare and you're not sure you, what you're how do you
0: sit there and say i'm gonna get shot or that how how much is that bull weigh? Three, four, four hundred pounds. No,
2: no, it weighs about well, two
0: thousand pounds. Right, so exactly, I was making the point, so thank you. How and do you I prepare to swim yeah, so in what's the you, North
1: Pole? Because I gotta tell you the truth. Breath. I I saw you do that and I'm just like, no way I would do that. The shrinkage alone would scare me off.
2: Seinfeld episode. <laughs> I always talk about that. I still think I have problems, and that was twenty years ago, eighteen years ago. So now
0: the thing, um, the thing, What was your mechanism? What what mechanism did you personally employ? Because it won't always work for the, for the same, you know, for everybody.
2: So, some of it's peer pressure. You go in, you know that you've got to do a job. There's a lot of people that are prepared, for example, the car. Yeah. I did the 253 in the Bugatti Veyron. I had spent four years working up to that. We had had canceled things because of weather, this and that, so I was really committed. Yeah. The thing that scared me was when we did the preliminary runs, there was a professional driver in the right-hand seat. I was in the left-hand seat as the driver. When we went to do the top speed run, he wouldn't get in the car. And I said, Why not? And he goes, Better one of us than both of us. Because.
1: Oh, well, that's, that'll instill confidence. Well, hey, Thanks a lot, Dad. No, no, no. Uh,
2: hey. But, as you said, you're pushing all the parts to the absolute limit. The tires expand. Mm. You know. Everything in that car is pushed to its limit. If something's going to break, it's going to break. Right at that Then point. the other thing you got to worry about is any animals coming across the track. Oh, you know, a bird. If a bird flies over, it's probably going to go through the windshield. Yeah. If you hit uh, any kind of an animal, it throws you off kilter. There's mm-hmm. no room for error. Stay you're you're rubble on the side. You've got to stay on yeah. the clean. Yeah. Part you're the you're track in a dip. passenger car. A passenger <laughs> car at that speed is no matter. I had a suit on, helmet. It's not going to protect you. You're no. You're toast. Yeah. In a race car, and I've driven those before. You can survive yeah. a crash. You yeah. see it all the time in the Indy cars. made for it. it the,
1: cage, the cage itself yeah. is designed to withstand that kind of At those impact. sort of
2: speeds, what sort of distance are you covering per second? At the, in the Bugatti, I was, I was doing a football field and a quarter per second. Oh. 200 miles an hour is a football <laughs> field a second. so, all right, so just, listen, we've got to take a big... Just imagine that in one second, that distance. I know.
1: Oh, that's amazing. So wait, we gotta we gotta take a break. We're gonna we be have. joined by Heather Berlin, but I want to know this from you because I, I believe this. You, you're either a speed guy or an experienced guy. The experienced guy is the, is the climber, whether it's like you know rock climbing or or Everest, you know, uh, or an uh, <clears throat> Uh, you know, standing on the precipice, looking out, going, "Wow, I've done this!" And the speed person is is like the thrill, like, "Ooh, yeah!" Which one? Which one are you?
2: I'm both because oh. because the thrill is 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 the same in the end. When you're standing on top of, say, the Matterhorn or Aconcagua, Kilimanjaro, whatever, there's this tremendous feeling of, "I did that. I accomplished okay. it." Um, when you drive the top speed right afterwards, you're like, I did it. I did it safely. I'm here. Um, you do get more of a quick adrenaline rush yeah. when you're doing the 253 in the Bugatti. It's a lot more satisfying long term when you, when you have to climb yeah. a mountain. And it takes How long, long does leave. it
0: take you? And I don't, this is not a pun about mountain climbing. How long does it take you to come down after <laughs> events like that?
2: You know, it depends, um, but there's always a come down, and that's always a problem. Um,
0: Interesting. You know, yeah.
2: it, it, you know, each time you do an adrenaline uh, experience, you've got to do a, get a little more adrenaline to get the same effect. Right. And that's a problem with what oh, I do. Oh, yeah. yeah. you chase it, you chase
1: it. That's exactly why I don't, um, mm. uh, I used to have a little Ducati. I, do, I no longer do, because my wife made me sell it, because, of bike, uh, bike, right? and like, that's why I asked where you were, because I'm a speed guy. Like for me, how fast
2: did you go in the Ducati? Oh God, I
1: think the fastest I ever did was like a buck 70,
2: a buck 70 on a motorcycle, a buck, a buck 60. Something. You're, you're, that's a lot scarier than two fifty in, in a Bugatti. Oh, but let me
1: tell you something. It's uh, all I can tell you is this. It's not scary at all because it's the only time in my life where nothing like the chatter. Shut up. Like the chatter. Uh, uh, anybody who knows me can tell oh. that I'm a little bit like squirrel. Like there's, there's a little of that in me. Anybody who knows me can see that. That's the only time ever in my entire life where, without trying, the, all the chatter, silent, just silent. And so, you know, it wasn't scary at all. I just, all right. But anyway, enough about me. Uh, uh, <laughs> that's why I asked, because yeah. the, the deal is, if I climbed a mountain, when I got to the top, I would be like, oh, crap, we got to we gotta go down. Well, no,
2: no, no, no. But that is the thing. When you get to the top, uh, for example, the Matterhorn, very scary climb, took us six hours. We rushed to get to the top. Coming down took me 10 hours. It's much more difficult coming down. 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 You've burned up all your energy. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, it, it's it's worth 80 percent. 80%, the experience accidents.
0: tells you to, to that you've you've consumed an awful lot of energy, expanded yeah. mental, yeah, physical. Of course. physical yeah. and you've got to be very sensible on the descent.
2: And 80% of all fatalities and accidents happen on the descent. Wow.
0: Yeah. Yeah. wow. On a oh, cheery that's, note, that's we'll take that break. <laughs> um, yeah, wow. Right. What, a, what an adventure story with Jim Clash. Right, Dr. Heather Berlin up next. Don't go away. Squirrel.
1: PXG.com slash StarTalk, code Talk
0: Welcome back. I'm Gary O'Reilly. And I'm Chuck Nice. And this is Playing With Science. And today, we're all about extreme sports. Extreme. So, <laughs> we didn't just do that, did we? Sorry, we did. Uh, right. Still with us is adventurer, adventure writer, Jim Clash, a man who has a list of so many envious things He's on his He's a walking... Fulfilled Bucket List. Oh, he is. That's what Jim oh, he
1: is. yeah.
2: Well, thank you, guys. I yeah, mean, uh, sure. I never think of myself that way, but sure, why yeah. not?
1: All Me the sure. stuff that people dream of doing before they die, you actually do it while you're walking around living. So that's yeah. awesome. And I don't know what that's, I don't know what I just said because it'd be kind of hard to do it while you're dead in the ground, wouldn't it? I just like it that I'm still around. (laughs) You do (laughs) too.
0: How's that sound? Right, introduce our next guest. And uh, joining us. Friend of
1: ours. Oh, yeah, friend of the show and Star Talk All Star. (gasps) And our resident neuroscientist, Dr. Heather Berlin, is with us. Yes. Hello, Doc. Hello. Hello. Hey. Good to have you with us. Okay, so, yeah. Right,
0: straight off, what's going on in his head? Yeah, we're going to pick apart Jim's brain.
1: Right, yeah, I don't know now. if there's anything.
0: He's flown at eighty-four thousand feet at two point six Mach. He's jumped into a barrel and got his ribs broken by a thousand-pound ball. Uh, done all sorts of things: driven at two hundred and fifty-three miles, what skied at the South on? Pole. Yes, um, you know,
1: seen the blackness of space from the edge of the Earth's atmosphere. Uh, yeah. Jumped, jumped out of a plane. Uh, this guy's done everything. What is going on? neurologically in the mind of somebody who is, did who, those things and who does who these wants to go of, back and do other things right, and keeps yeah. doing them.
5: Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a few things. I mean, first is to say that not everybody who um, likes to take risks, there's not one sort of, um, prescription in terms of what's happening in the brain. It can vary for different people. So there are different types of risk taking. Some do it because they're actually chronically compared to someone who, let's say, doesn't take risks, understimulated. And so they need more just to get the same feeling of excitement that we might get from, I don't know, you know, driving in your car at 80 miles an hour or something for someone that might give them a little rush. Whereas for him, that might be nothing. And he needs more to get the same level of activation to feel the excitement. So that's actually, you have to kind of find out the personality of the person first and what drives them to then understand what the neural basis of that is. So I guess the question I'd have is, um, To your guess, is he are you doing these things um, because you're getting a high out of them? And when you do other things, you not feel that same level of excitement that whereas other people might feel that.
1: So, Jim, that's to you, uh, which is a question we did not ask you. Is there a high involved? And uh, do you feel understimulated when you're not doing these things?
2: The thing is, um, it's my job. I'm an adventure writer, so I go out and I do it. And as I said earlier, I'm an actor. I see myself as an actor getting in the car at 250 miles an hour whatever. Um, I don't think before I started doing this stuff uh, that I was understimulated. But the problem is the more you do it, the more the adrenaline rush comes on, yeah. the more adrenaline you need to do it, and um, the more regular everyday things become blasé. Same with all the people I've interviewed, from John Glenn to Buzz Aldrin to Neil Armstrong. You interview these people, and then, you know, you go home and and uh, uh, to your wife, and and suddenly, it's not John Glenn or it's not uh, Neil Armstrong. So, yeah. the thing is, once so you go there, you know, it's there. Yeah, you know, it's there, and and it takes more and more to to get the same high. I think it's like a drug. Uh, I'm, yeah. I'm sure Heather Heather can talk more about yeah. that. Well, it's
1: but, funny. I was just about to ask this, so yeah. Heather, and here's and and you can break down the neuroscience behind um, whether or not this mimics the characteristics of addiction. But um, I also want to know, can the brain's reaction and chemical reactions actually lead to a person coming back to this like a drug? So, so one, tell us how it is like a drug, if it is. And two, what, how does it make you want more like a drug?
5: Okay. So I'm going to, as I said, it's very nuanced. There's no one answer, but I'm going to break it down to simplify it into two categories of types of risk takers. One is the type where we, it's, it's genetic predisposition. Mm-hmm. There are certain people that are born with a certain type of Um, gene that codes for a serotonin receptor, where if you have this, you're more likely to be a risk taker or to be impulsive, right? Or to go for immediate pleasure despite what the negative consequences are. So most of us are risk averse. We outweigh the risks of something um, which will hold us back and make us more conservative. Other people who may be genetically predisposed are more likely to go for the immediate reward despite the risks. That's one type of person. Then you can have where It's a sort of learned behavior. And now the prefrontal cortex, when it's very active, that makes us be a little bit more conservative, thinking about the future consequences of our actions. If you have damage to the prefrontal cortex, if it's underactive, the various different states where then you become more Mm risk-taking. Okay. You're less inhibited. So What happens, though, when you're in a a high-stakes situation, there's a certain kind of neurochemical response. There's a subcortical part of your brain, evolutionarily older, the reward center of your brain, where you get this hit of dopamine. It's the pleasure center of the brain. Yes, now, if you implant electrodes there and let's say a rat can self-stimulate by pressing a lever that actually stimulates that part of the brain directly, right. they'll choose to press that lever and self-stimulate and get that feeling of reward over sex if they're sex-deprived, food if they're food-deprived, water if they're water-deprived, to the point of exhaustion. So it's really a very powerful um Urge to have that feeling over everything. And this is the circuitry involved in addiction. So what we find is that people can develop what's called behavioral addictions, like pathological gamblers, people who get a high from stealing, um, internet addiction. Where you start getting, you can sort of self-stimulate that part of the brain and then you want to get that hit again.
1: Don't don't forget. Don't don't forget sexaholics, please, please.
5: Absolutely. Yeah. They get the the sex sex addiction. And so what happens is then just like with drugs, you habituate. So at first, you know, that first time, I don't know, you climb a free climb a mountain or something, you're going to get this extreme high. But then maybe by the 10th time you do it, it feels a little bit. Um, more blasé. So then you need to up the ante. You need to do something other. You know, maybe now you climb the mountain. Um, you know, with with no net underneath or whatever it may be. So each time as your brain habituates, you need more and more stimulation to get that feeling of of that that activation, that dopamine hit. Uh, And so I think that's what's perhaps happening in this case, where, you know, he just started doing it a part of his job, but then over time it became behavioral addiction and that the regular things in life are so blasé in comparison and you need to seek more and more to get that high.
1: So, but unlike an addiction, which uh, often causes reckless behavior because Um, uh, There are two things involved. One, the reasoning area of your brain is affected by the drug. And so, you know, and two, you are just so focused on that, like you'll do anything to get that thing. Jim takes a great deal of precautionary measures. He does a lot of research. He's uh, very measured in his approach to it. Um, Can you explain how those two things happen at the same time?
5: So as I said there, so that's a really good point. So there are these two categories of people, I would say. I mean, obviously a little bit more nuanced than that, but roughly speaking. The ones who lack impulse control are the ones that have like, let's say, damaged the prefrontal cortex or genetic predisposition or under activation the prefrontal cortex where they're more, they're less thoughtful in the risks that they're taking. Ah. Okay. So they're less measured. They, they don't have as much control. It's like they, they see that you know piece of chocolate cake and they have to go for it right away. They can't withhold responding. Get in my Whereas, belly.
1: Okay, sorry. Right.
5: <laughs> Whereas in this other case, which, which he seems to be more like is that um, you have perfectly good control of the prefrontal cortex. You can be very measured. You can take all the right um, precautions. You're not doing it impulsively, right? But yet, the, you still need to find that fix, right? Even if it's in a very um, thoughtful way, wow. ultimately you're still going for that risk. I mean, you can even think about it with performers, right? You know, you as a, as a comedian, you get on stage, you get a bit of that hit of dopamine, right? When you're on stage. And so some people will choose to perform, you know, over everything over when they're, even if they're not making money at it, you know, if they're, they're having to live in a crappy studio apartment for years because that high of being on the stage is so important. is so, is so stimulating. Has somebody been talking to you about my life?
2: <laughs> hey, hey, wait a minute. This happens with journalists too. Okay. It's not, it's not just comedians. So the thing is, the thing is here, if you've got somebody who can control
0: the way that they approach this, but they are ultimately competitive, how does that skew The whole situation. Oh, because competition, can that be a drug in and of itself? I mean, that adds adds another fuel to the dopamine rush.
5: Absolutely. And I think that, that, I mean, competition is a huge factor that gives you that hit of adrenaline, you know, trying to win. And that's evolutionarily old drive, right? You know, Mm. competing. But the thing is, it can cause you to do stupid things sometimes people take risks that are let's say if you're doing something just to get the high you might do it with some risk but now if you're competing against somebody else you might try to up the ante and this is where people end up you know dying in extreme sports right because they keep pushing and pushing and because it's so competitive yeah. that they might get to places where it does become really dangerous and that is sort of what's pushing them over the edge that drive to 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 compete and everyone's upping the ante wow. then you end up people Falling off mountains and dying when they're, you know, um, rock climbing and those kinds of things. Okay,
0: well, you haven't fallen off a mountain yet. No. I hope that remains that case. Right. But you have something to...
5: Yeah,
2: I, I like that, Heather, about the competition because I know sometimes I'm out there in a race car school... Uh, or a drag racing school and at first it becomes just about being able to do it But then you want to you know, you want the best time you want the fastest speed you want the, the quickest lap around the track and that can lead to recklessness um, I've been lucky so far. I haven't had any accidents. But again, the competitive drive is there
1: well, that's See, for you as you a writer, a, you have a great prefrontal cortex, Jim. <laughs> I, hope. Deal, man. I hope.
2: I hope that prefrontal cortex wasn't injured when I fell sk- figure skating with Sasha.
1: <laughs> Believe it or not, <laughs> right, Heather? That head injury could have affected him where he could become a reckless person. <laughs> I hope not. He's kind of lucky, oh. right? See, as
0: a writer, your yeah. drive may not be to w- break a world record. You know, I'm going to run faster than Usain Bolt, I'm going to throw a javelin further than someone else. I need a scoop. I need the big story. Right. I'm an adventure writer. What adventure can I have that takes me above and beyond, sets a, sets a story that no one else is going to touch for
2: decades? Well, and, and one thing is you never quite know where the story's going to be. Uh, I was down in South Africa not too long ago, and I, I took a ride in a, uh, an English Electric Lightning, and the oh, pilot put me through a, a bunch of... Uh, can you tell us what that is? I mean, for those who don't oh, it's know it's home. It's a supersonic I mean, uh, plane. That, I mean, a yeah, supersonic I mean, plane. It's a, it's a plane. Delta Wing aircraft. It's called a Wet 60s. Now. Yeah, and, and it's English, called English lightning, Electric lightning. lightning. English Electric Lightning. Yeah. yeah cool. and, and the pilot took me through a series of horrific aer- aerobatic moves, which made me get really sick. And afterwards, we landed the plane, and I was angry at him. And yeah. I said, why did you do it? And he gave me some reason. He said, are you going to stick around for the air show tomorrow? And I said, no, I've got to go back and do another adventure in Cape Town. That night, the next night, I read in the paper that there was a crash at the air show. Oh. It was him, and he died. And the plane was totally destroyed. And that was the last, I was the last person to fly in that plane with him. And it was hydraulics failure. So you just never know. Again, when wow. you're when you're when you're you know, your number's up, it's up.
5: See, it's and
4: the moral of that story you.
1: is don't be a dick and make somebody sick while you should be just showing up <laughs> oh, the plane works. All right. Okay. <laughs> oh, so God. there you have it. And I guess on that note.
2: That's a downer. That's a downer. Let's
0: end on an <laughs> upward. Quite literally a downer, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> thank you to Dr. Heather Berlin. Heather, um, that is awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Heather. Thank and uh Welcome. Um, Jim Clash is going to be sticking around, um, maybe with a cheerier story than the last one. Absolutely. Any luck. All right. Coming up next, we have Dr. Eric Breimer, an extreme sports psychologist. We'll be back shortly.
1: Do you want to set up your child for success? IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And Star Talk Radio listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at ixl.com/starttalk. Visit ixl.com/starttalk to get the most effective learning program out there at the best
4: price.
0: Welcome back. I'm Gary O'Reilly. And I'm still Chuck Knight. Nice. And this is Still, Playing, Playing With Science. Science. Today, we're talking about extreme sports with adventure writer Jim Clash. And joining us now via Skype, extreme
1: sports psychologist, Dr. Eric Brimer. Hey, doctor, welcome. Yes,
3: doctor. Thank you very much.
0: Right, you're up in Leeds University, Leeds Beckett University in the United Kingdom, and you are author of phenomenology and the extreme sport experience. Have I mangled that even with my bad English?
3: No, that sounds pretty good. It's a good effort. I've been
0: patted on the head.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. Yes, thank you, Uh, Professor. So, you know, Doc, um, uh, when we talk about phenomenology, uh, I I suppose that means because you're looking at this from a phenomenological uh, or a phenomenological phenomenological perspective as opposed to um you have a different interpretation of extreme sports everybody thinks extreme sports is just oh i'm on a skateboard i'm extreme or hey i did a base jump i'm extreme so can you tell us what is your interpretation of or definition of extreme sports
3: well, I think we're still working on a definition, okay. um, because we're, you know we're we're moving forward from the traditional or maybe old fashioned is a better way of looking at it now perspective where extreme sports are really about risk or sort of trying to trick death or something along those lines. Um, and we're moving more into trying to understand the motivations and experiences behind undertaking something like base jumping or um, proximity flying or surfing giant waves or whatever it might be. So um, we're moving a little bit in towards creativity and we're looking at um, human nature relationships. We're trying to understand um, what's the difference that makes a difference between somebody who is a high performance athlete in say a traditional sport context and somebody who's a high performance athlete in an extreme sport context. So on the surface, there's a number of obvious things that are different. one is if you mess up you're most likely going to die in an extreme sport or if you don't it's it's really because you've got the skills and capacities to do something about it so we, in along these lines, we talk about it a mismanaged mistake or accident would most likely result in death but beyond that and we're talking about the real extreme ones here we're not talking about the skateboarding we're talking about the 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 other the, you know the furthest well, end of the which yeah. which of course is is still evolving because um uh, you know, as, as base jumping has moved into proximity flying and as, as surfers have um, started to utilize um, uh, machines to get themselves onto the bigger waves, extreme sports are evolving rapidly. Um, but the other things that are really obvious is that with traditional sports, we um, are, are um, you know, obviously the rules and regulations um, constrict, constrain what, can, what people can do. Um, they determine what, what success is all about. Um, and also, in traditional sports, boundaries are very heavily constrained. But within extreme sports, um, boundaries are not constrained. There is, um, uh, you, you know, you, you, it's up to you how you interact with the, with the, with the environment around you. And um, uh, there aren't any rules and regulations or external bodies that say this is what success looks like. Um, and, and therefore, if you do it like this, you're doing well. So those are the things that make them slightly different. Um, and because of those things, we're, you know, we're looking at a, an activity that is continually evolving. We're looking at something that involves creativity, cooperation, um, and, and all those wonderful things that we think are really good. And sport is supposed to um, enhance and um, so forth, but modern sport probably does that less now than adventure sports.
0: Okay, so, I okay. mean, okay, doctor. Do you commonly see a type of person that is predisposed to go to the extreme sport end of the spectrum?
3: Uh, that I think is a really wonderful question, and that's a question that a lot of psychologists have been working on for a long time. It it, it does link to the original kind of idea that there must be a risk taking, thrill seeking, <laughs> kind of personality um, uh, structure that that sort of, if you like enforce it or forces or guides or um, uh, creates uh, um, the capacity for somebody to to undertake an activity at this level. In fact, what we're finding is that there isn't one personality structure. Um, People have tried all sorts of different kind of personality measurements, Mm -hmm. tried to categorize people in, in particular ways. And what we're finding is the difference, the variability is so great that we cannot say there's one particular personality structure that suggests you will go into an extreme sport.
1: So, so in yeah. in studio we have with us Jim Clash, and mm-hmm. uh, Jim is an adventurer and a uh, journalist. Jim, let, let me ask you, based upon what the um, uh, doctor just said. Uh, would you, from your own experience interviewing so many of these adventurers and being one yourself, is there a common thread that you've been able to um, identify, and we won't use this as empirical data for research, but just from your anecdotal experience, have you seen a common thread throughout them, and would you say that it resides within
2: you as well? I would say most of the people I've interviewed who are extreme uh, adventurers um, all have something in common. It's called curiosity in action.
1: Curiosity in action.
2: Yes. And, okay. and people are very curious. I know I'm very curious about what it's like to go 250 miles an hour, uh, to climb the Matterhorn, to get shot with a 38. Uh To me, that's, that's a curiosity I have. And if I'm interested in that and I want to know what it feels like, I take action. So the one thing I can say about most people who are extreme adventurers, they're very curious. The other thing yeah. is, they are not fearless people. They they really practice, they they research what they're gonna do, and they're very smart, most of them, about what they're doing, mm. and there's a difference between perceived risk and calculated risk, and right. most of these people take calculated risks.
1: Gotcha, so uh, uh, Doctor, uh, yeah. based upon what Jim just said, um, yeah. in your empirical findings, mm-hmm. um, what kind of disposition do you see in these athletes with respect to um personality traits i'm talking about the athletes themselves Persona- personality traits um and what you said was i find very very intriguing these are not reckless people then okay no.
3: okay so can you can you no. speak to that yeah Um, I think that sort of the idea of the reckless risk taker was the traditional understanding, and and we're definitely finding that's not the case. Um, And and what we we actually find is that people who participate in whatever activity it is, and the more extreme it gets, um, the more important this is, they have a really deep understanding of their own capabilities and capacities, um, really profound understanding of the environment that they're moving in, or if they don't, they find out about it, that that sort of curious streak, which I, I, I definitely agree with. Um, and a really deep understanding of the activity, the task that they're doing. So those three things are absolutely important, um, and um, they're they're vital to to an extreme athlete's capacity to perform effectively. No extreme athlete wants to die. I mean, the the, the positive side of their activity is so powerful that doing it in a way that means they can keep doing it, they can participate again and again and again and again in different ways, is really, really important. That profound relationship with the natural world, the way of being sort of part of the natural world. If you're a, if you're a, a you know, an adventure in, in nature, whether that's air, whether that's water, whether that's land. That curiosity, I think, I agree with. Um, we we're looking at it more about an embodied creativity is what we're talking about it. Uh, but it's the same idea. The creativity used to be thought of as something you you think up of an idea and then you find a way of um, of making it happen. But what we're Looking at much more now is that creativity is an embodied activity, and it um, and it and it sort of it, it changes and develops and, and evolves as action happens, as opposed to working it all out and then going and doing the activity. So I, I would definitely agree with that notion as well.
1: You just described a jazz player, man. <laughs> absolutely, <laughs> that's a that's
3: jazz that's player, that's brother. Absolutely. So that, the thing,
0: is, the thing is, Doctor. While I'm listening to both Jim and yourself talk through, I'm hearing about people who have learned to control fear, learnt to control circumstances so as they have the knowledge and ability to deal with the environment around them. And then I think, are extreme sports actually quite good for us? Because you sound as if you're creating people who are very, very mindful of a lot of things around them and being able to control things that would normally crush others. And therefore, yeah. it has a positivity attached to it.
3: Absolutely. And that's definitely been our argument and some of the stuff I've <laughs> written about is how, how good they are for health and well-being. I, I'm not saying that everybody should do them. Adventure has different levels and maybe adventure in, in, you know, in, a, in a lower level kind of adventure might be appropriate for everybody. But I would definitely agree with the fact that extreme sports, for those who undertake it, have, uh, are really positive for, from a psychological, emotional and physical perspective.
1: So um, we're we're. we're- Drawing to a close here, but I I, I, I want to get to a couple things. One, uh, in the segment before, which you were not a part of, um, most unfortunately, because you're fascinating, um, we were talking about going fast, uh, and Jim was talking about Mm -hmm. driving a Veyron at 200 and something miles an hour. I myself had a, a super bike for a little bit of time, and I used to drive it very fast, but for different reasons. I wasn't really... Seeking a thrill, as mm-hmm. much as I was quieting my mind, be- yep. because at the speeds that I traveled, if I looked the wrong way or did the wrong thing, I knew yep. I would die. Yeah, and that caused me to, for the only time in my entire life, to have a singular
3: focus. Absolutely.
1: Can you talk about the transcendent nature of ex- uh, being extreme?
3: Yeah, 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 yeah. So, I-, I would definitely agree with that, and that's what we found in our research as well. Is that rather than being about the thrills and excitement and so forth, that does happen, but that kind of maybe happens afterwards. The actual experience itself is very focused. You know, if, if you're, it almost facilitates that focus without you necessarily having to make it happen. The traditional mindfulness literature is about um, a proactive process where you put yourself into a mindful um, a mindful state. Ooh. But what extreme sports do and adventure more generally is it facilitates that, whether you are aware aware of it or not? And exactly exactly what you're saying, you you are so focused on the environment that you're in and ensuring that you're doing things effectively that things, the socio-cultural kind of concerns, things just sort of fall away. But it's more than a, a I no longer have to worry about things. or I'm not thinking about all the whether I've got enough money or the worries and concerns. It's much much deeper than that. And what we have called, its like a—we call it a freedom. It's a freedom from um, that sort of mental chatter, which essentially is mindfulness.
0: Okay, oh before—that's the exact word I use, chatter. <laughs> okay. Okay, before we we have to take a break, Doctor. Mm. There is there is a. I'll oh, oh, we'll get to the end of the show. Um, green sports. Green yeah. sports. Yeah. So green, if green, we yeah. ta- if we take extreme sports like mountain climbing or hanging by one mm. arm off a cliff, uh, doing some really what I would call dramatic stuff out there in the mm. environment mm. am i right in thinking that you're proposing that the more people do that the more they'll find an environmental positivity to protect that outdoor mm. space i love it that that extreme yeah. sport then has another fold back of positivity is that can you yeah. just in, enhance upon what i've just thought about there
3: yes yeah no that's a that's a really nice thought i, I like that thought but that is what we're finding we're finding that um, the more people participate in all sorts of, um, you use the term green sport, you could call it green exercise or nature sport or whatever you'd like to do. So not necessarily mm. at the high extreme level, but the yeah. more people involved in these activities, the more they slip into um, this sort of mindful, focused um, state of, uh, that, they, that they find, which, which ultimately also enhances well-being the more likely they are to realize a deeper, more profound connection with the environment they participate in, whatever that might be. And as a result, the more likely they are to um, want to, do, to give back. So it's a reciprocal kind of relationship.
1: Fantastic. You're absolutely right. You know, both of you just made me think of every surfer cares about the ocean more than anybody Correct. you will ever meet. Yeah. So, yeah, that's fantastic. Wow, this has and been that, great. Doctor, thank yes, you.
0: Thank you so much,
1: Doc. I mean, Eric Dimer
0: from Leeds Beckett University in the UK. Sports, sports science, science, ecology. Ecology. I like it. The Who holy thought of sports, sport would bring you into science and ecology? There you go. Well, it has. That's and true. thank you to everybody who's been on our show today. That's it. Bye for now. Look forward to your company next time. Thank you.
4: Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply.
5: At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate. Pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.